0: It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 164. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. It seems like it's been like three weeks since we talked. Only it, has. I it has. it has, yes. Yeah. One of them was my fault, but last week was yours. I hear you went uh, traveling a little.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I went um, my first backpacking trip of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, living in Colorado, there's not much opportunity for good backpacking this time of the year, because the snow in the mountains, you know, this is like, you know, you need snowshoes to go up there. Even if a few, even if it's 90 degrees here in Denver, right? It, you need snowshoes if you're going to go up to where I usually camp. So, but if you go over the mountains to Utah, uh, um, oh. it's great time of the year to go uh, camping because it's supposed to not be as hot. Uh-huh. Um, I got unlucky in that respect, but it should be cooler in May than, you know, middle of the summer right. and, and then you get the longer hours and everything like that. So so that's what I did as I had o- headed over to Canyonlands National Park and took a backpacking trip for a few nights and totally off grid, no signal there. Although I do actually have something to say about that cuz I did actually. Yeah, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, so I had um a signal the first night instead of staying, uh, you know, backpacking. Cause I had to drive out there. So I stay, there's a campground right outside of Canyonlands national park, uh, the needles district area. Uh, and I stay there. It's a great campground. I stayed there 28 years ago. First time I was in Canyonlands. Uh, it's still there. It's one of those weird things where it's a private campground kind of like right next to a national park. And there's probably rules about, you know, that their are grandfathered in, or I don't know what the story is. Right. Um, but I get there and there's, there's no signal. There's nothing. You're off grid, except that when um, uh, you know, I looked and I saw that there was like a Wi-Fi router and stuff. And I thought, well, that's weird because I don't think there, there's any way for them to have a line out here. There's no lines going across this much land for a landline. Um, and I was like, is there, is there a way to get online? And the woman behind the counter looks at me and she goes, we just got Starlink. Cool. Yeah. So Starlink, of course, is the uh, uh SpaceX uh internet thing. Right. And uh satellites, low Earth orbit, hundreds and hundreds of them. And I know that it's been around. And of course, you know, they made news recently because they're being used in Ukraine. Right. Um, but uh I also have friends that have been on the waiting list for Starlink uh sets uh, to be able to hook in that haven't heard anything. Right. But apparently this place got theirs and uh, so I went onto their Wi Fi, which was hooked into their Starlink box, and it was like I was home. It was just super fast internet in the middle really? of nowhere, no wires, no mobile phone service, nothing. Um, and I was like, cool. I mean, there's really nothing else to say about it because it just works. It's not like, you know, well, honestly, everything, everything I browsed was tinted blue or something. It was just, you know, <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was just the internet, but it was like, uh, it was interesting.
0: To be honest, the fact that you're able to say it just worked, to me, is huge. I mean, yeah. you know, given given satellite internet's reputation up until Starlink, um, it just worked was not a phrase you used. There were definitely issues, mm. mostly because they were not going low Earth. They were going to uh, stationary satellites 23,000 miles above yeah. the Earth. Whereas low Earth, you're talking about a couple hundred miles at most, I think. I forget what mm. they're... Uh, with uh, their orbital attitude. I don't even is. think
1: that. But
0: yeah, it, it may not be that, but it's it's like on the order it's it's a couple of order of magnitudes closer than the uh, than the stationary satellites, and yeah, that's actually pretty darn awesome. That's, yeah,
1: that's my really first cool. experience using it. Um, did did bring you bring the internet? Test. I did. I did not. Oh, I did not. I. Oh. I. No. Well, the thing was, it was like you know the Wi-Fi network, of course, was at the little you know. Um, uh, you know, the store where you sure. check in the little yep. thing. So, you know, when I go to my campsite, there's, there's not, the Wi-Fi doesn't extend out there. Right. Right. So I did walk back at some point uh, and um, you know, got on the internet again, but then, but when, every time I thought about, Oh, I should run a speed test, I was always at my tent. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, I didn't get to do that. It seemed pretty fast for the things I did. I mean, it could have been misleading, you know, when you're, when you're super thirsty in the middle of the desert, a drop of water is amazing, <laughs> you know, so maybe it was a little bit of that, but it, it was also kind of neat too, that it was, I, I got to test it out in an area that really just had no, you know, they, it really was in the middle of nowhere Right. Um, with no, not only no uh, other like kind of way to get internet, but no wires either, you know, right. no telephone wires are coming right. from anywhere. I mean, they had batteries and solar uh, solar array it was their power there.
0: I was going to ask if there weren't any wires at all, were they getting power, but they, yeah, they had well, they, yeah.
1: I heard a generator running ah, uh, okay. at night. Okay. Uh, and cause they have some plumbing there cause they offer showers you can pay for and stuff. Right. And the store of course had some lights. So there was a generator and then there was a pretty big solar array uh, I don't know how they had power years ago when I was there. Maybe they didn't. Maybe 20 years ago when I was there, they just didn't have power. I mean, right. it, that could have been. Um, but uh, so, so yeah, it was, it, well, that's it was pretty cool. cool. I, I know yeah. that
0: the numbers I've been seeing for Starlink speed have been impressively high. And I just like, it. it's great to hear some independent confirmation that while we don't know the numbers you were using, it was yeah. fast fast enough. It seemed like you were at home. That's actually very, very cool. It's very, very heartening. I think for a lot of people who are uh, looking forward to uh, getting on that system. Yeah. Indeed. So very cool. Um, let's see. Let's what?
1: go ahead. Oh, well we could, uh, you, you wanted to talk about the Google changes.
0: Yeah. This is uh, something I've been hearing about. Oh, uh, yeah. and honestly, technically, I suppose it's possible I might be impacted. I may have set up my accounts after this. Anyway, the whole point, Mm. this is actually, there's a bit of a background to this that's probably worth covering first. And it applies to everybody. Mac and PC is the same. This has more to do with how you access your Google mail than it does anything else. Mm. Um, In the past, when you have an email program, be it something like Thunderbird or Microsoft Office's Outlook or the mail program that comes with Windows or the mail program that comes with Mac, um, you would configure it to access your account by giving it your email address and your password. And it would go out and fetch your mail and you would do your maily things with your email program. The problem with that approach, of course, is that once two-factor authentication was uh was introduced, if you enabled two-factor authentication on your account, there was no way for your email program to expose the two-factor. So logging in with just your um, uh, email address and password didn't Mm -hmm. work. What they ended up doing instead was for two-factor enabled accounts, most of the providers that enable two-factor also give you the opportunity to create what are called app passwords. Yes, Those are uh, typically 16 characters, random. They're never anything you would ever be expected to remember. Um, And you would copy and paste that into the password field of your email program Mm -hmm. as soon as it started complaining that, hey, Your password doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work because when you've got two-factor authentication, it's not enough just to have your uh, email address and password. So you'd supply this app password, and it required a separate step to go in and create the app password, copy-paste it into your email program, but then it would only work in that email program. It would never, ever work for things like um, logging into Gmail on the web, for example. Even if you did create an app password, it simply won't work for that kind of login, interactive login. What they ended up coming up with was this thing now referred to as OAuth or open authorization. Mm. Um, I will include a link to uh, the Wikipedia uh, definition of OAuth because it actually includes a couple of good um, diagrams that kind of uh, uh, show you in concept how it works. The bottom line is that Instead of the email program taking your email address and password and somehow remembering that and remembering to use it for every future uh, uh, interaction, instead, when you set up the account in your email program, it goes out to your email service right then and there and says, hey, this guy's trying to set up an account. Would you please authorize him? So in this case, Google then pops in. If you ever do this with an email program, all of a sudden you'll get this Uh, dialog box, this window from Google that asks mm-hmm. you to sign in pretty much like you sign into Google anywhere else. Right. The neat thing about that is that you can then use, Google can then have you use two-factor authentication or mm-hmm. whatever other authentication mechanisms might be available to you. Um, what happens then, though, is that Google author, you know confirms that, yep, you are who you say you are, and it then hands a token back to the application that it then saves that says, okay, this guy's been authorized to do this, and we can go ahead and start exchanging mail and doing maily things again. Uh, The program itself never, ever saves your password, uh, because as we know, that's not enough. And um, it basically lets Google handle the complexities of confirming you are who you say you are. Now, where things get weird is that for several years, Google has had a concept of what it has called less secure programs. What it boils down to is a less secure program is a program that is authorized or is authenticating using only an email address and password. By default, your Google account would not allow that. There was actually a setting that you would go in that says, yes, yes, I know what I'm doing. Please allow uh, less secure programs to access my account. This was very common for people uh, configuring, say, Thunderbird, to try and download and access their Gmail. And because, uh, of course, Thunderbird would ask for user or email address and password, that's how it would access your email. Uh, but that would stop working, of course, unless or until you basically said, it's okay, Google, I know what I'm doing. The issue is that uh, later this week, as it turns out, Google is going to take that option away they've announced Mm -hmm. that they are removing the ability to access your account using what they consider to be a less secure uh, program. All that really means is that username and password will not work. You will not be able to uh, download your email into your email program, be it um, Microsoft Office's Outlook or Thunderbird or the mail programs or whatever, um, if you have it configured with just your email address and password. Um, I expect that this is going to catch a lot of people by surprise. Um, it hasn't gotten a ton of publicity. Uh, it's gotten some, and I definitely have heard from folks that are worried about it and wondering what to do next. Um, it's uh, It'll be interesting to see just how much of a uh, an uproar it causes when the time comes. Like I said, it's going to be one of those things that all of a sudden your email program will simply stop working. Depending on your email program, uh, it may simply say, you know, your login was denied. You must have changed your password. Please enter your new password. And of course, you won't know any of that. You you're, haven't changed your password. You just enter your new password and it would still not work. Um, and you'll be basically stuck in a loop where you're entering your password that you know is correct, but your email program won't work anymore. To be clear... The Gmail interface, gmail.com, mail.google.com, uh, that's actually not affected by any of this. You can still sign in and log into that the way you do today, um, which is already taking you know taking uh, things like two-factor authentication and other security steps into account. It is only email programs that are doing it this way. The um, so what should people do when they find themselves in this situation, or if they're smart enough to be listening to us talk about it um, in preparation for this situation. Uh, The one thing that I think is, is driving this, of course, is that I think Google wants people to upgrade to more current, more modern email programs that support OAuth. Um, Not everybody does this. Not everybody has. um, I hear from a lot of people that love to use, in some cases, ancient email programs. And I'm not sure that this step is necessarily going to work. There is a way to make it work, but they're not going to like what it's going to cost them. Um, So uh, step one, the ideal solution from, I think, most providers' point of view is that you upgrade to an email program that supports OAuth. Most of the current modern ones do, including the ones that are included in your current versions of your operating systems. What you'd have to do, though, unfortunately, this will depend on the email program itself, is that when it starts to fail, when your password stops working, uh, if it's just going to ask you for a password over and over again, uh, first of all, it may, for all I know, it may just suddenly notice that, hey, password didn't work. Let's go try the OAuth thing. And it may just run you through the OAuth. Uh, style of authorization once, and all will be well with a one-time change. I'm not expecting that to work in most cases. Mm. Um, What I expect will happen is, like I said, the password will fail. You'll get a notification, and it won't really be clear what to do. What you may end up having to do is recreate your email account in your email program. As soon as you create a new account, with say a Gmail.com email address, then uh, email ex- programs that support this will automatically kick you over to OAuth, and have Google do the authorization. They'll they'll do the thing that I've been describing as uh, what you uh, you know the, the quote unquote new way to do things. Unfortunately, that means you may have two accounts in your email program. It may be confusing. Um, it's it's unclear exactly how smooth that particular piece of the transition will be. However, there is a workaround, and the workaround has actually been in place for a very long time. The the fact is people that already have two-factor authentication enabled on their Google account uh, will not uh, experience a problem because they've already had to address this. They have uh, app passwords available to them. So the other solution to use your ancient email program, to continue to use your ancient email program, is to enable two factor on your Google account. And then, once you've successfully done that using the web interface, gmail.com or accounts.google.com, once you've done that, you can then go into your account settings in Google, get yourself or create an app password for your email program, plug that into your email program the next time it asks for a password and you should be good to go. The reason I say that um, this is probably not going to make a lot of people happy is because the the my sense is that the general populace that uh, desperately wants to use their ancient email program is the same populace that uh, tends to not want to use two-factor. Mm. So you, those are the options that I'm aware of right now. Uh, the, the third option, of course, is to give up on your email program and can just use the web interface because that will continue. Yeah. But uh, for people that want to use an email program, or as I recommend and do myself, if you use an email program to back up your email, which is something I also recommend, um, I spend my day in the Gmail web interface, but I also have Thunderbird running, downloading my email, backing it up locally. Um those email programs, those are your two choices. One way or another, switch to OAuth for the uh, authorization step when you create the account or set up two-factor and start using an app password um, as the password for that account. But I wanted to give everybody a heads up. Um, you too, as a matter of fact, if you hadn't heard about this already, because I suspect you'll hear about it from some of
1: your uh, your audiences. Maybe. Um, yeah, I could see. I mean, there are definitely people that are using older Macs. Uh, or just have don't like up, updating their operating systems um, i don't know why they're listening to me or watching my videos if they're they're doing that but <laughs> it's it's more insidious than you know. that though
0: because um say you've gone through you, know, you set up your email account you know oh, 6 yeah. 10 years ago and you've gone through all of the upgrades you are yeah. current on your OS you are current on your apps you are current on everything yeah. your account never got reconfigured to use OAuth it's still using a username, an email address and password, and that's going to stop working. Yeah, yes, what that's going to be painful. What happens next is unclear because, like I said, the email programs may or may not be able to notice that this is the change that's involved. Um, and if they don't, they're just going to keep prompting for a password and annoying people.
1: You know, I mean, email in general, uh, I mean, I'm sure you see the same thing. It tends to be very troublesome for people like us <laughs> to deal with questions um, because... First of all, for some reason, maybe it's as much as nine times out of the out of 10, if somebody has an email problem, they will describe in detail all sorts of things and completely leave out which email service they use, which is like the number one thing I want to hear up front. (laughs) You know, it's like going to a mechanic and saying, Well, I'm having this oil leak and this sound and this. You haven't told me what type of car you have, right? (laughs) You know, it's, I think. I was actually thinking about this today. I was sometimes I think people think email is kind of like utility, like water or electricity coming into your home. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It's just flowing in. Right. And it's it's not. It's, you know, it really greatly depends. And if you have Google mail or Apple mail or hotmail, it's different than a school's email or like, you know, work. Or your isp i mean these are all very different kinds of systems everyone is unique in some way there's like no two that are exactly alike and it the first thing you know the most important piece of information when having trouble is what email service are you using um yet people just don't even think to even include that because why would it make a difference why i'm using gmail or or my corporate you know school email server it's just right. email it's the same right Right, you know, it's very different. So, so, that there's that, and you know, I, I could see people, like you said, who just haven't changed any configuration in a long time, um, and maybe having an issue. But also, the problem is, is that going way back, you know, email started as this download from the server to your one computer thing, pop right. email, and a lot of people are still in that mindset. That they think email is something that's on the server, and then you check your email, it gets downloaded to your computer, and then you do things with it and it's on your computer. Whereas all modern email is much more like a web server where you're actually viewing the contents of your IMAP account or Google account or you know, exchange account, whatever it right. is. Yep. Yep. Um, but you could still mix those and you can get in a lot of trouble. You, know, oh, you yes. take some very important, you know, oh, here's ultra important emails. I'm going to create a fold, a mailbox folder, whatever they want to call it. Cause it's called so many different things. And I'm going to put that, put these emails in that folder. And is that folder a mailbox on the server? Or did you just create something on your local computer? Yep. Because it's the difference between doing it in mail app. Sometimes it's just one's right here and one's like a couple pixels down, yep. you know, <laughs> exactly. And and so then you create like, oh, I've stored my 10 most important emails right here. And now they're just sitting on your computer and maybe not even getting backed up properly. Or I have put them here and now I have access to them everywhere. And then when you get somebody that's like, oh, now I need to update because this Gmail thing, um, you know, and a simple thing. If I knew that everybody was just logged into Gmail and using Gmail with everything on the server, you could just say, hey, just remove that account. And add it back yes. again the modern way. Yep. Done. Yep. But yep. if you have taken a bunch of emails and put them in a local folder somewhere, and done your own thing, and right. all bets are off. Right. I don't know. You've got some stuff here, some stuff there. I can't tell you without being right there to actually examine. And even even then, I got to scratch my head and be sure. What am I looking at here? Like, where is this? Where is that? Um, it, it gets very confusing and very difficult. So.
0: And, and um, to, to add to the confusion, uh, Gmail specifically, uh, labels. Mm. Labels are not mm-hmm. folders, but no. people treat them as folders.
1: Yeah, they're tags. They're closer to tags. Well, they yes. are tags. Yes, and, and, yes. Yeah.
0: And that gets very confusing oh. very quickly. And of course, when you access Gmail using IMAP on a PC, even Gmail treats them kind of sort of like folders, which means that... Um, deleting in the wrong wrong place doesn't always delete what you think you're deleting. It just, Oh yes. Yes. It gets, it gets very confusing very quickly. Anyway, I'm just expecting there to be a little bit of, um, confusion in the coming weeks and we will, uh, we will see where it lands, how badly it turns out to be. Yeah. Um, I will uh, be referencing an article that I've written on it that, um, uh, uh, publishes tomorrow. Actually, we're recording this on Tuesday. It publishes on Wednesday, uh, so by the time you hear this, it should be available to you. That actually goes a, goes into this in a little bit more depth as well. But I figured it deserved a little bit more uh, broad exposure because, like I said, I think it's sneaking up on a lot of people. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, uh, if you allow me to go back to the canyonlands, go back to the canyon. Go back to the canyon. I love after backpacking trip to talk about the technology I use. Sure. Uh, I, I love being off grid. I love being out in the wilderness and relying on myself. But I also love having technology with me, um, and it is amazing. I'm just always amazed still of how much the my phone, my iPhone, really is this piece of technology that's so multi-purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how I ever backpacked without it. I mean, I I, I know <laughs> how I did. I had a lot of other technology, right? Right. That you know, maps and compass and a uh, uh, flashlights and cameras and all this stuff. None of which I have now because I have my phone. and in this case, this is the first time I actually use my Apple Watch while backpacking. Um, and you know, it, it, it's amazing. It's I have I use an app called Topo Maps Plus, okay. and I store all of the uh, I store my map on it, and it uses the GPS on the phone right. uh, to track. And you know, I t- I basically put the phone, my well, put, do put the phone in airplane mode, so there's no self service, there's no Wi-Fi. But GPS still works. And being in the outdoors, it works really, really well. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I'm, you know, can't believe years ago I had a GPS device that to get that thing working, you know, you had to sacrifice a chicken and, you know, to hold it up to the sky. I mean, I had you know, one then of those a yes. dot telling you you're within a square mile of this, you know, but um, it but took forever iPhone, to sync up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the iPhone just works and i'm sure the android phones too but yeah. their chipset works so well with nothing but pure gps signal to map where i am on the on the app on top of a topo map and to and of course using all the app features to trace my route to have a route pre-traced for me so i could tell how how you know what percent down the trail i'm you know, at mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. much is left that kind of thing my altitude all all sorts of details you know what's coming up multiple maps, which really came in handy this time, never happened before, but I got to a, a place where the trail diverged and uh, I was looking for that other trail and it wasn't there. And I went like a quarter of a mile and it st- still wasn't there. And fortunately I had gone into that app and I had saved multiple maps. So i switched to a different map and that different map had the trail intersection at a different location interesting and, and it was and that one was correct without that i mean you know i i would never have thought to bring more than one map with me in the past sure but i don't know what i would have done if i didn't have that second map and say oh it is further down here okay let me keep going so that was interesting and also it has satellite views too which are which sometimes are a little bit better at telling you like what's what sort of terrain you're on then just to say and give maps. you an
0: idea of what what landmarks to look for man. yeah
1: so i used all that um that was great uh, to be able to do that. Uh, my I, my Apple Watch, the app I use, has a little Apple Watch companion thing. So, a lot of the time where I would have pulled my iPhone out of my pocket to look to see where I was, I was actually able to glance at my watch and get a little mini map that showed where I was and, like, oh, the turn is coming up, but I'm not there yet. You know, no need to take my phone out. The watch told me, which was kind of cool. Um, of course, the iPhone. Also my camera. Of course. And great at great outdoor camera it is. You know, where the phones fall down really is telephoto. But yes. you know, you don't have the zoom, the big zoom lens. Right. But for landscapes and and close-ups of like cactus flowers and stuff like that, fantastic. And also doing stitched together panoramas. Yes. Fantastic. Great stuff. Uh, selfies too, you know, getting yourself in the scene. <laughs> fantastic. So, you know, had all of that. Um, even as you know, book readers, you know, I didn't have to bring yes. a little thin paperback with, so I can sit at night and you know enjoy reading while out in the wilderness. I could do that with on my phone. I could do it with the audio book on my phone as well. So, mm-hmm. um, really, did kind of encompass. If if I was the type that journal,ed I would have journaled on mm-hmm. the phone. Um, I did run into one hiccup, but uh, fortunately survived it, and that was with the battery recharger that I brought with. Um, i you know you have to bring a recharger with because i was gonna say it's just everything you've
0: described this. so far sounds like you're using a lot of electrons
1: actually i'm not so once i turned off wi-fi and, um, and bluetooth, yeah. uh bluetooth and all that stuff there was really no um it, it used very little battery like the entire like first morning's hike you know six miles or whatever it was you know and to camp to relaxing in front of my tent um we're talking like I went from hundred percent to 80%. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It really, cause you're not using a lot of the things that will take a lot of battery. Uh, just getting the GPS signal turns out does not use a lot. Sure. And the app is built to actually be very gentle and battery and all. So that, but you still needed something to charge. And my Apple watch on the other hand was very battery hungry. <laughs> uh, so I brought with me a charger. I thought I had found the perfect one. There's a first time hiking with it. Uh, usually I've got the bigger ones, the ones that, you know, they're kind of, they have a little weight to them mm-hmm. and I don't want to backpack with them because they've got some weight to them. So in the little ones, they're not worth anything. You know, those tiny little ones, like you get as free giveaways and stuff. Yes. They're like, you know, the first time you use it, you maybe you can boost like your phone, like 20%. And then after the first time, it never works that well. Right. Um, I found one that was a medium size that I was really excited about that I should have been able to recharge my phone, like wholly, you know, hundred percent, at least from, And it was small and it had an extra feature that I thought would be handy to have as part of my backpacking equipment. It could be a warmer when you press the button in the right way, (gasps) it went into warming mode. You may have the same one I have then. Yes. Yeah. Now I didn't need it for this trip. This trip I I mentioned before, I actually got unlucky in the heat. It was like this time of year, it should be 70 degrees out there in the desert. Really nice, much better than July or something. I got a couple unlucky days. It was 90 degrees. It was hot. It was sunny. So I definitely did not need the warmer part of this, but there are are trips here in Colorado, even in the middle of the summer, Mm -hmm. you get high enough in the altitude and the conditions are, are, you know, you get down to the forties at night. Sometimes it might be nice to have something to, to, to kind of warm your hands up the, in this case though, unfortunately, when I stopped camp the first night and I reached into my backpack to get the charger, it was warm. And oh, I, man. It's like, oh, no. And I pull <laughs> it out and it's the red light is on. And I'm like, it's warming. How long is that? Because the button was just too easy to press and it must have gotten pressed. Oh, man. So I was like, oh, no. So it had already gone down from three lights of battery power to two lights. So, like, lost two thirds or maybe more of its power because it was right. sitting there warming up the 90 degree air around it. Right. Um, so I quickly charged my phone because it's always better to have the, that energy in your phone right. than sitting externally to it. And, uh, that night I charged my watch. And then I, I, from that point on, I turned the watch off at night. So uh-huh. I knew I was going to be yep. Yep. low on power the next night. I, um, it was down to definitely the one, one dot. So like the one third charge, I charged my phone. I think I'd taken a lot of pictures, a lot of panos. I took some side hikes. I took some video. Uh, I was down to, I think about 60%. It wasn't, wasn't that bad, but I charged up to 85% and then the battery died. So I was like, okay, I'll survive. (laughs) but boy, that, I don't know. that really makes me feel like, okay, I need to get one that maybe doesn't have this warming feature or it's a little harder to turn on or something. Right. Right. Um, but you know, those kind of things happen. I think I could have done fine. I think about it if the battery had just been dead, I think first thing I would have done is give it up on the watch completely. Just shut it off. Oh, right. Maybe used it the last morning, turned it on and let it run out of juice or whatever the phone itself. I would have turned off at night just to save that little extra bit, but I, I checked the battery, you know, what's using battery power. And there was like nothing. It was like, it showed my, my topo maps plus using some, cause that's what mm-hmm. I was using most. It showed the camera using some. Mm-hmm. And that was about it. I mean, it was really low. Like I think I could have made it through the whole trip on the one, a single charge, charge from the yeah. first day. How, how many um, days were you gone? I was, it was three days. Okay. Two nights, okay. three days. Yeah. Okay. So not, not, not too bad. Um, And you didn't have any solar solutions with you? No, because, you know, they're heavy, too. And usually the solar solutions will, uh, you know, they'll charge up a battery that will then then you can charge your phone to. Right. But it's like, well, any battery like that, I would have just used the battery power anyway. So the panel would have been kind of useless to me. Like if I was going for a week. Yes. Then, then, yeah. And actually. It would have worked out great here because you know in the Canyonlands, I mean, talk about maximum sun. You're at yes 5,0 like, yeah, oh, feet. You know, so like I've, I've got one that
0: actually is it unfolds and it's designed to like hang over your backpack as you're mm-hmm. walking. Um, which I thought was a pretty interesting design. And yes, you would want it to charge your battery during the day that you can then use the battery to charge your your phone at night or whatever. But um, yeah. but yeah, since you're I mean. Like you said, it sounded like you're in great shape for uh, potentially having been able to run the entire trip on 100 one charge. That's fine. it's good to know. The um, the it's funny, I actually have two of those uh, hand warmer USB batteries. yeah, and, but I have them primarily as hand warmers oh. <laughs> where they could be convenient recharge you know, ba- convenient battery sources as needed um, out here, of course. Uh, we end up with we don't have that many ninety degree days. Uh, we have a lot of this is mostly for um, uh, you know the folks that I volunteer for Wasart the animal uh, animal response people who will go out and hike up a trail for uh, you know a dog that is you know can't make it down or something like that and sometimes mm. the weather can be a problem uh, uh, or if we're out in a field trying to help a horse in the middle of winter. Um. Then yes, hand warmers are very, very much um, appreciated. The problem that I have is that the hand warmers you might buy at, um, like a, an outdoor equipment store or even Costco, you can buy these uh, big boxes of a hundred uh, chemical uh, hand warmers. You know, right. you, pr- you shake them up and they get warm. Um, as it turns out, uh, they don't store very well or for very long. And uh, mm. where whereas these do right as long as you. So I actually have one. In my car, my the vehicle that I use when i whenever I might respond to something, um along with my radios, right? my ham radios and such, and it's just automatically getting uh, topped off every time I drive so that when I'm somewhere and I need both the radio and the hand warmer, I've got it. Uh, but that's interesting. I, I, I yes, I see your problem. um the the hand warmers that I have have a little rubber protector that covers the end that has the buttons.
1: Oh, okay. So mine doesn't. It has a button. I'm looking at it right now, actually. It's got a little white button. It sticks up a little bit above the surface. Uh-huh. So easy to run my fingers. And the first thing when you press it one time, actually, I think you need to press and hold, but that's easy to do if it's in a back Yeah, you have to press and hold, but if it's in a backpack, bump and it around. Press to get something. Yep. It's easy. And now I get that one red light on, and that means it's starting to warm. Yep. And I have to press and hold again, and then it shuts off. Yeah. So, Interesting. If, if you design. end
0: up doing that one again, um, see if you can't come up with some, you know, um, even duct tape solution to protect the button from getting pushed.
1: Well, they have that, you know, maybe that stuff that's like a plasticky glue, you know, that you can use to like mold little things. Yes. And something it, like, like, like that. fix like chart, you know, ends of cables and stuff. Maybe just almost like taking some of that and putting a ring around it right? What yeah. uh,
0: someone did um, at one of the organizations that I that I help out um, for radios, we had an issue where the volume knob, I'm sorry, the channel selector knob was very, very easy to turn and there was no way to lock it. So we'd end up with inexperienced people in the field who would mm. accidentally turn the channel number and they wouldn't realize they weren't talking to anybody. He 3D printed a protector. And oh. this is another solution where um, if you'd had a 3D printer, uh, then uh, it would be interesting to try and whip up some kind of a, uh, you know, just a cap for the end of that thing that uh, would protect the button as well. Hmm. Thought that was a pretty neat use of 3D printing technology for, yeah. for a very specific and interesting solution.
1: Yeah. Cool.
0: So I mentioned Wikipedia earlier. You're mentioning Wikipedia now.
1: Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, I I read an article at uh, CNN site. I didn't actually see if they did a TV thing on this, but it actually, it's something I may have talked about years ago on the show. Um, I have, as you probably know or remember, a journalism degree. And for a while, I thought my career was going to go there. I thought I was going to be a reporter. You know, I thought I was going to be reporting the news, you know, the guy writing the newspaper articles. Um, So I still have a big, uh, you know, a lot of strong feelings about news and journalism and all of that. Um, One of those, you know, that and all this new technology and entrepreneurialism and everything else I'm into makes me often think about, like, is journalism and newspapers and all of this kind of, you know, it's got one foot in the past, you know, we still have newspapers <laughs> right and we still have news sites that are based on the newspapers they were there before, but yet if you were to invent journalism today would that have anything to do with it you know it almost feels like even the TV news stations feel like they have like one foot in the past you know of you know Walter Cronkite reporting the news every night that kind of thing um. And what would, if you removed all of that and just started from scratch, what would news look like? And every time I do this exercise in my head, I always come up with the answer that it would probably look a lot more like Wikipedia Mm -hmm. than anything else that we've got today. Uh, A lot of problems with news. Like, for instance, when a story breaks, there's a news article written, and it's published, and it's done. Right. If there's an update, there's another story that updates it. Well, what happens if you go and read that first story? because it's recommended to you or there's a link or something you you have an incomplete thing maybe things have actually changed maybe if a bank was robbed maybe the guilty party was actually wrong in that first article and it's been corrected since and now you're reading old information maybe there's a whole other thing going on and wikipedia actually kind of fixes the problem By instead of saying, here's our original article, and now we have an updated article, it just updates the original article. The article you're reading, Wikipedia, has the most up-to-date information. If there's a story to be told, it's told in there. You you can look at the history of whatever it is you're reading about. But the information is always up-to-date. It's all there on the page. And I thought, this is probably much more like what news should be today. It shouldn't matter if you're three days into the news story and now you decide to read about it. You shouldn't have to read like four articles to catch up or one article that doesn't answer your questions about what happened earlier. So you go back and read these old outdated articles. Anyway, I always thought that it should be something like Wikipedia, like news agencies should be updating one article for that news agency about whatever the event or topic or whatever it was and and as it evolves. As it turns out, the story at CNN that we'll link to talks about exactly that uh, or what happens for real here. It talks about um, one guy that basically he's one of many people that does exactly that kind of thing. When a story breaks, he might be the one that creates the initial page. And then thousands of other editors come in and update the information as it goes on. And it's kind of this hive mind thing that happens. People adding things, people confirming, fact checking, uh, updating, rewriting, you know, uh, just on and on and on. But it's always the same page. So if you bookmarked a page, you know, an event happens and you bookmark that page after reading it an hour after it happened, and there's one paragraph there, you could go back to that bookmark three days later and find page after page after page of detailed information about that event and i think it's fascinating that this happens and i think it is for me turned wikipedia almost into my primary i think it is my primary news source a lot of times now if i really think i want to know everything there is to know about this thing or i just want or or the opposite i just want a quick summary of this thing instead of going to a news source i just find the wikipedia page for it so
0: a uh, couple things mm-hmm. Um, one, what I love, absolutely love about Wikipedia is, uh, you know, if an article gets changed a thousand times, you've got an audit trail of what those changes were. In other words, if you want to delve into the history of the article itself, how it changed over time, you can do that. All of that is maintained. Wikipedia also has a very strong, um, I don't even know what to call it, but a very strong history of making sure that there are citations mm-hmm. um, and that the citations are accurate. Or especially in uh, non-news articles, they will call out to say, you know, this article needs more citations to to you know be considered truly valid. Um, I just I love that about Wikipedia. That's one of the re- one of the reasons I go there as well for a lot of just sort of reference information i thought you were going somewhere else really yes and the reason i say that is because uh wikipedia has a um uh, uh, a sister site oh called about. wiki news yeah which sounds exactly like what you were yeah. describing yeah um, that sounds like the uh the, the canonical source for news that meets all of the criteria that you were just describing mm-hmm. Wikipedia tends to be more reference information you know it, it ends up discussing uh, uh you know news events i would say with a slightly more historical pr- uh, uh, perspective you know here's a reference article on blah. And here's, you know, here's all the information we have. And yeah, that information obviously changes over time. Wiki news seems more real time. I mean, I realized that it's really, really blurred between the two. Absolutely. But um, I just, for example, added the Wiki news RSS feed to my feed reader, Feedly, because it's a really interesting source of breaking news. What I find also interesting about both Wikipedia and Wikinews is that um, I I want to comment on objectivity, but I'm not going to because I really don't know just how truly objective they are. Uh, but they at least bring a much broader perspective in that. Anybody on the planet can author, you know, can update these articles and add value to these articles. So you probably end up with a, a source of information that is richer in terms of um, a global perspective than say something that was authored by uh, you know, an American news agency, for example. Uh, so I, yeah, I found it very interesting. Like I said, though, I, I, I thought that's where you were going and then you didn't.
1: Yeah, I actually, I want to, so while you were talking, I did a comparison between Wiki News Uh and Wikipedia for Uh some various news things going on. Cool. And I have to say that Wiki News seems to be a little too much, exactly the same kind of thing that other news sources have. Very short, they're shorter, right? News article size kinds of things. Right. And then I take that same topic. Right, and I go to Wikipedia, and I find the equivalent page. I always name the same thing. I always have. To, sometimes you have to think about, well, where do I go? Mm-hmm. And I found page after page after page of detailed information, um, with a summary at the top, with citations, all that stuff. Yeah, sure. So I think even after uh, this brief comparison, I think I would still just go to Wikipedia and skip Wiki News. Um, um the the interesting.
0: It. I think one of the distinctions, though, is that. With Wikipedia, you kind of sort of need to know what you're looking for.
1: Right? Yeah, but yeah, it's but a, you it's know a, it's a, when a, you find it.
0: It's a reference, it's a source of reference information. Again, oh, I, I would expect it saying. to be very deep and very detailed and so yeah. forth. Yeah. But for example, if you're just wondering, okay, what's going on in the news today? Oh, I see what you mean. Yes. Wik yes, Wikinews.org is the place to go. And that, you know, those bite-sized summaries of what's happening in the world, that's great. That's yeah. wonderful. Good and point. then you might use that as a jumping off point to go deeper over at Wikipedia.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. So there, there's a good use for Wiki news there. I think maybe I tend to actually look at headlines on feeds and things like that. And elsewhere. you know, yeah. and then I just go, I, I don't go past the headline. I say, ooh, I want to know about that. And then I jump into the Wikipedia article. Um, sometimes it takes a few times, like I'll see a headline and I'll be like, that looks interesting, but I, I'm not going to look into it now. And then right. oh, the next day, oh, that's still going on. Oh, I should read about that. And the next yep. day, okay this is this seems like this is getting really important. And then now I find the Wikipedia page. and by that time the Wikipedia page is you know re- really well done right. Um, right so so I don't know, it's kind of interesting. I think one difference between my vision for the future of journalism, which will probably never happen because you know people tend to hold on to these old systems but but my vision for the future of journalism as a Wikipedia type of thing or as a wiki um, it would need the the sources need to change because right now wikipedia all the sources are news articles right so you can't have it stand by itself it's standing on top of all the news sources that are coming out mm-hmm. but i think if you had organizations where instead of the source being the article the source was the journalist right right so a journalist yeah. came in and said i have looked into this aspect of the story i have this these facts from this source Here's the citations. I have these facts from this source. I have this interview that I conducted at that point. And here's a link to the original interview source material. And I'm going to add all this stuff into the Wikipedia article. And then you could add, you could have some interesting things happening when you you actually remove that layer of, you know, because right now you go and say, oh, the source for this is, uh, let's say CNN, for instance. Um, Then it's like, oh, well, who wrote the CNN article? And a lot of times it's not as simple as just, you know, it's like a newspaper thing where it's written by this journalist. Sometimes it's a team of people, right, um, including researchers and all of, all of that. But if you actually could go past that and write in the Wikipedia article, say it was Joe Smith, statistics researcher working for, you know, this organization who got this data from police databases in Detroit, <laughs> you know, then you'd have that trail all the way back. Um, yeah, and, it's interesting because you
0: know, both, I mean, wiki, the wiki, Wikimedia projects, yeah. Wikipedia projects, Wikipedia, Wikinews, and a bunch of others—they mm-hmm. um, rely on volunteer effort, right? Mm-hmm. And um, journalism, you know, true investigative journalism or reporting journalism, uh, kind of requires that you probably ought to be paying somebody. You ought to hire somebody to do the work, right? So right. that's one thing I think that probably gets in their way. But but it also Uh, opens the door to uh, other folks who are not necessarily journalists, but who are perhaps um, even more directly involved in the topics at hand if they know to Come back to a site like Wikipedia, or I'm sorry, Wikipedia or uh, WikiNews, and add their firsthand experience. Um, if they, you know, if they are the people that can be quoted, if they are the people that can be, uh, you know, c- part of the collaborative effort to to pull together the stories, that adds a tremendous amount of value. Not limiting it to just journalists, but it's an interesting problem. I, it's it's a different way of a- approaching it. And yeah, I would love to see somebody like. Um, uh, I don't know, a, a big news organization, pick one, and just have them switch everything to uh, a Wikimedia type of technology and yeah. tell all the reporters, have at it, go do the thing um, yeah. and, and see how it shakes out. I think it'd be an interesting experiment.
1: It would be, uh, yeah, it could change a lot. I mean, you, you, the way you might get a job then might be starting as a volunteer contributor. yes. yes. And eventually rising to the point where you're valuable enough that it's like, we like, we have our next round of, you know, hires coming yeah. in or, or have our works and, and uh, well, you know, even, editors, if, even if yeah. you end
0: up doing your, your quote unquote volunteer work at something like a wiki news, when you go to, uh, you know, whatever large news organization you want to apply to say, Hey, here's an example of all this stuff that I've done. Isn't it good? Isn't it good? Don't you want to hire me? I mean, it's, it's, it's the advice that I give people who are interested in getting software jobs all the time It's most important thing. Um, not what language you learn. Uh, you know, obviously there's mental models and so forth that you need to understand, but the most important thing you can do to get a job programming is to start programming, find an excuse to write software, use that software uh, to learn and to then eventually be your example of how good a programmer mm-hmm. you are so that somebody will hire you. The same thing applies here. Use this opportunity to write public facing news articles as an opportunity to show uh, potential uh, potential employers just how good of a journalism, how much of a, how good of a journalist you really are.
1: Yeah, it's like the idea of instead of waiting for somebody else to give you an internship, yes, you just do the internship yourself. Certainly, as a programmer, that's exactly. You know, you you don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to get permission from somebody to write a program. Yep. You could just come up with an idea, write it yourself. Maybe that doesn't go anywhere, but that gets you your first job. It could be the same kind of thing with journalists. It's not right now. I mean, I guess you could have your own blog. You could be a. You could have a vlog, a blog, a TikTok account. You could do all sorts of things, right? Right. But we certainly don't hear of news organizations hiring out of that pool. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But sometimes I don't know. I think it's starting. I mean, maybe it doesn't start with the serious hard news, mm-hmm. but I think, uh, and some of the you know more entertainment and uh, other stuff. I think maybe it, it kind of comes from there. You know, you might get a a TV sh- TV deal, right. <laughs> <laughs> and it may not be what you call journalism, but it's not right. fiction either, right? Right. right. Uh, you know, I mean, like somebody may may do a cooking show on TikTok and then actually end up getting a cooking show on a network i i know definitely there's been examples of people doing like kind of youtube like non-fiction documentary video things mm-hmm. and then that translating into you know from a web series to a television show and that's also not yep. necessarily journalism but it's not fiction either it's yep. non-fiction television so yep. interesting anyway.
0: stuff well i'm going to pay some more attention to Wikipedia yeah. news and wikipedia that's very cool cool speaking of cool Yes. What a tra- what a segue. Um, so I have been. I think I mentioned it last time that I was looking forward to Strange New Worlds, Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. I am enjoying the heck out of it. Um, it's it's a fun series. Um, it is much more episodical, harking back to the original series, uh, whereas, you know, the other series, the the Discovery and the Picards and so forth, those are much more of, of, a, of a, you know, eight or ten episode story arc. Whereas while there are some themes in Strange New Worlds, uh, the episodes do a little bit better job of standing on their own and, you know, the people on it are fun. So I'm enjoying that. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago that I watched Dune. I think we talked about it here. <clears throat> And uh, as a result, I decided to review uh, where I was on reading all of the Dune material. Um, I have a hard time now with Frank Herbert's writing the, uh, the original Dune. However, his son, Brian Herbert, and the co-author uh, wrote a number of other books that flesh out the history. So I decided to start reading them in, um, the, in the Dune universe chronological order. And yeah. the first one, is The Butlerian Jihad. I'm about halfway through it and I'm having a good time with it.
1: Oh, excellent. Um, I'm also going to talk about a book series. (laughs) Um, Two things that I love, science fiction and pirates. Like (laughs) like real pirates, you know, like... 18th century Pirates oh, no. of the Caribbean kind yeah, of thing. Space Pirates, huh? Okay. Many, many. Yeah. And yeah, My one of my first big games that I actually did that kind of launched my career was called Space Pirate. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, but science fiction authors uh, and cr- you know creators of TV shows, movies and stuff have tried over and over again to merge pirates and science fiction. So I'm not the only one that likes both those things. Right. Most of the time, almost every time it's a failure because if it's too piratey, it gets corny, right? The science fiction gets corny trying to make everybody pirates in space. And if it's too serious, then it's not piratey anymore. It's like, well, maybe that is what (laughs) what pirates would be like, but it's no, no fun anymore. Finally, you know, I heard about this series by an author that I've read before, Alistair Reynolds writes some great stuff like Altered Carbon and all that. He wrote a series, a trilogy called the Revenger series. And it's, he gets it right. He gets it so right. I was jumping for joy after reading like the first couple chapters. How good this is! It's not corny at all. It's dead serious. Far future science fiction space travel, but set in a world that is like so (laughs) piratey. I mean, they even have like, it's like the main form of transportation, the main engines of the ship are solar sails and they have to run out the sails and there's all this stuff. You know, it's like he brings the elements in and it, and it feels real. It feels like serious you know, a very satisfying world, a lot of world building in this. He built an entire world. He does this in a right. lot of his books that you'd like. Okay. He's written three books. I hope he writes more because this world is created. is so fascinating. Right. And why these space captains are going out looking for these treasures that they could find and how the crews are very similar to like 18th century pirate crews, but there's reasons why, you know, it feels so good uh, and it's just and great characters and all of that. So the I'm, I'm two books in, uh, Revenger and Shadow Captain, the first two books. And the, I've got the, the third book I'm going to start tonight. So good. I mean, he's a good author anyway and sure. uh, uh, easy to read. And the audiobook is read. Uh, most of the characters in this happen to be women. And the book is read by a woman. And she puts like 18th century British accents in. As, you know, obviously the book didn't have any accents, right, right, right. but she puts it in to even increase the feeling that you are, uh, you know, in this piratey world, but it's far future sci-fi. It's so good. I'm, oh, I'm so, darn it.
0: Now I've so got so something else to add to and, my and to I, want, read like, <laughs> I
1: want, I'm like, oh, I want this to be made. Into, I mean, this would be tough to make into a, a TV or series or movie because it would be big, big budget. Right. You know, big, big, uh, there are a lot of things in here that would be very, you know, visual and ha- need lots of special effects so It would need big budget, but it would be so awesome <laughs> to see this world, uh, on a big screen. Very good. Yeah. Very good.
0: Oh, let's see. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, the article that I'd like to point people to this week is what are less secure apps and why is my Gmail not working? It's askleo.com slash 145891. And it's basically a written version of some of the things we talked about, fleshed out in some details, uh, with some, you know, pictures and such. Uh, that, uh, I think is going to uh, be important for a subset of our audience yeah, in the coming definitely. days.
1: Uh, I'll link to one that's, uh, using the Mac doc with only your keyboard. The Mac doc seems to be a very visual element. You move your pointer down to the bottom and click on apps to launch them. Mm-hmm. But in fact, there's a whole set of keyboard commands cool. that allow you to kind of manipulate it in such a way to almost make it your control station for controlling your entire Mac. Um, and it's, it's interesting. Uh, a lot um, of people don't know.
0: It's a, um, um, an accessibility issue, not everybody can use a mouse. So mm-hmm. there, there needs to be, I don't know, I'm assuming that Apple has you know, st- design standards that oh, yeah. applications Huge. have to. Yeah. And typically what's in the Microsoft uh, user interface design standard is that there must be a keyboard interface. Um, yep. And it's, it's a standard approach. So yeah, the same thing applies to the uh, uh, Windows taskbar, which is the moral equivalent.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of people, actually, that's why I did this video originally is a lot of people were saying they liked how they can control the Windows taskbar with the keyboard. Ah. It's a shame you can't do the same thing with the dock. But you can. They're, they're not equivalent. <laughs> like they, they, There's an overlap, a big Venn diagram overlap between the dock and the and the start yes. menu yes, and all yes, that. Yes, yes. And the taskbar. But it's not complete. It's maybe halfway, right? So a lot of people mistakenly think, oh, why can't the dock do this? Because the taskbar can. It's like, you can do that on the Mac, but that's not not part of the dock. It's part of something else on the Mac. Right, exactly. the feeling is is that, oh, you can't control the dock with the keyboard at all because it doesn't look like you can. And it turns out you can and really well.
0: Yeah, yep. Anyway, it's one of those things too, that I, every once in a while I have to suddenly retrain myself as to how to use it. When for some reason my mouse dies and I don't have an, and I don't have an alternative, mm-hmm. right? all of a sudden it becomes a keyboard only machine and yep. okay. How do I do this again? Very good. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week. Yep. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh164. As always, if you've got a comment or a question for us, leave a comment on that show Notes page. We do see it. Thanks, as always, for listening. And we will see you here again next week.
1: Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.